0: Welcome to Mind Love, episode 211. Today's episode is all about how to manage overconsumption and addiction.
1: You know, one of the most fascinating findings in neuroscience in the last half century or so is that the same parts of the brain that process pleasure also process pain, and they work like opposite sides of a balance. But one of the overarching rules governing that balance is that it wants to remain level. It doesn't want to be tipped for very long to the side of pleasure or the side of pain. Our brain starts to downregulate our own dopamine production and our own dopamine transmission that means that our dopamine levels aren't just brought back to tonic baseline they actually go below baseline we go into a dopamine deficit state for every pleasure there is a cost turn up your frequency with mind love
0: bite-sized brain hacks for seekers dreamers and doers it's time to give your mind a little love with your host, Melissa Monti. Hello, love. If you haven't subscribed yet, hit that cute little button. Subscribing, sharing, and five-star reviews are really a great way to give back if you find this show helpful. They help the show climb the charts, which helps me get even more amazing guests for you. Today, I'm reading a short and sweet review from Fidelza, who says, so inspired and motivated, bite-sized, powerful messages that will change your mindset in life. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. Even just a handful of words is so helpful to the show. So I really appreciate you taking the time. And now let's get started. Growing up, I had always heard that there was some sort of addiction gene. You know, like some people are just born with the gene that makes them more susceptible to becoming addicted to things. As a child, I was sure I was invincible. So even though alcoholism and addiction ran in my family, I just knew I was immune. Actually, I thought I was immune to addiction up until the peak of my actual addictions. Addiction is funny like that. You think it's gonna be different than it is you think you're still in control even when you're not. Looking back on my bulimia, there were days that I would binge and purge dozens of times in one day while still convincing myself that I was the one in control. It was only when I really started trying to heal that I started being honest with myself about how bad it was. It became very clear that I was not immune to addiction. But what I've learned since is that none of us really are. The survival mechanisms in our brains make it a risk for anyone. Yes, some people do tend to fall deeper and harder into it, but this can be from a number of factors, including childhood trauma, other environmental things, but still, addiction doesn't really discriminate. And you can see it, can't you? It's everywhere zoned out faces staring at their smartphones. There's a whole culture around alcohol. In the right scene, there's a whole culture around drugs. Hell, even in the Stepford Wives scene, there's a whole culture around pharmaceutical drugs, people praising their Prozac. I knew a woman who thought she found her soulmate because they could share Klonopin. And I'd be lying if I didn't belong to all of these groups at different times in my life. If you have never been addicted to something, First, I would honestly want to check your screen time, but once you've been fact-checked, if you have never been addicted to something, then I get how it could seem a little crazy or at least unrelatable. It's like, come on, you're destroying your life and draining your bank account and everyone can see it, so put down the drugs, Tanya. But imagine for a moment that you've never really felt comfortable with who you are. It could be because you feel like you've failed at everything you've tried, or because you were never really satisfied with what you did achieve. It could be because you've had thoughts or emotions that make you feel different, or like you don't fit in, or you aren't as good or as lovable as other people. Or maybe you were actually told or shown in some way that you weren't valuable, or that you just existed to meet other people's needs. Things that seemed to make other people excited just felt mundane to you. Or the experiences where everyone else was having so much fun just felt hollow and unsatisfying to you. And then imagine that you have this experience. Maybe you drink or take a drug or have a sexual experience or overeat or make some large impulse purchase. And suddenly everything feels great. You feel as if success is easy and right for you. And now it just feels good to be alive, even just for a little while. You finally found something that will give you a little reprieve where you can feel okay for a while. Maybe it starts small. You can overeat the cookie and just purge them real quick and it's kind of like it never happened. Or you happen to have a little Coke left over from the party last night, so... A quick pick-me-up in the afternoon isn't a huge deal, right? It's not the usual thing you do. And before you know it, you're back-to-back binging and purging, or you need a pick-me-up to feel good about getting out of bed. You don't even realize that your drug of choice doesn't feel as good as it used to, and neither do you. Your new baseline is notches lower than it was just a few months ago, but you barely remember what a few months ago felt like. And you don't even realize that now you need the hit just to feel like you or whoever you think you are right now. Do you even know what you feels like? It doesn't matter what the habit is ruining because you don't feel like you have anything other than the drug anyways. Life without it feels unbearable or even impossible. And maybe you don't even see that this is what it's come to for you. All you know is that when you don't have it, You feel a little anxious, and it's all you can think about. So it's easy to be in denial. But if you feel physical or emotional sensations when you are deprived of whatever that thing is, you're probably well on your way to addiction. When I got to that point, the cycle felt so inescapable that I just wanted out of it. And the only way that seemed possible was when my life was over, whenever that ended up being Thankfully, I never got to the point of making any moves to end my life. But man, I thought about it a lot. I remember thinking that I wished I had the courage. It would be so much easier to not wake up and do this all over again. It's rough. So if you don't understand, I really hope you never do. But I also know that under the right circumstances, it can get anyone. And now, our technology is exploiting the very reward centers in our brain that tend to lead to this addiction. So, we're all just a little bit closer to it than we'd like to admit to ourselves. You think that's bad? It gets worse. Well, there's a reason that your baseline is lower once you're addicted, it's because every time your brain releases dopamine, it actually creates a deficit. So every time that you give in to that little reward, you're going to have a period of time where you feel worse than you did when you started. So the more we chase that feeling of pleasure, the more we actually cause our own suffering. So in a world of indulgence and overconsumption, how do we avoid or get ourselves out of the cycle of destruction that comes with addiction? Well, that's what we're talking about today. And our guest is Anna Lemke. She's a professor of psychiatry at Stanford University School of Medicine and chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic, as well as the author of Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence, and she also even had an appearance in the movie The Social Dilemma. So three key things we will learn are why we are all so prone to addiction, how we are losing the ability to tolerate even minor discomfort, and how to fix our pleasure-pain balance. But before we get started, I want to invite you to wake up to the morning mind love. Every weekday morning, you wake up with the good kind of pleasure, you know, the long lasting kind that gives you inspiration to set the tone for a positive day. Every day I get messages from people saying that the morning mind love had the exact message that they needed to hear for the day. Sort of like a little self-help oracle. Plus when you sign up, you get two amazing free gifts and it's all completely free. So join over 9,000 people and go to mindlove.com to sign up. And now let's welcome Anna Lemke to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So what inspired you to focus your research on the relationship between
1: pleasure and pain and really addiction? Well, I've been treating patients with addiction for about 25 years now, and I feel like they've taught me a lot, and I wanted to share that with readers. I'm also just fascinated by this relationship between pleasure and pain and the ways in which our brain processes pleasure and pain in relation to each other and how knowledge of that neuroscience can inform our lives.
0: I have been addicted to a lot of things in my life, (laughs) both on a laughable level and on an extreme level. And so that's actually why I grabbed your book is because I'm always interested in that. And, and I look back, especially when I was younger, my first addiction was with food, which ended up developing into bulimia. I also was on Adderall for years. I had a whole party phase where I was partying too much. I have had a weird relationship with alcohol over the years too. And it's been for years in a range that people would consider healthy, but maybe it's because of my past that I'm always looking at it. And so even that I'm just like, if I'm thinking this hard about it, then why am I even doing it? So I'm not drinking. <laughs> and then now it's like screen time. And it seems like it goes from one to the next. And it's just always trying to find moderation, really? but it's, it's difficult. Why does it seem like Do you see that often where people tend to go from one addiction to the next and either they don't look at it or they do look at it and it just becomes this overwhelming factor in their
1: minds? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for your self-disclosure. I think that's always very brave and also very helpful to others when we're willing to share our own struggles. So I appreciate that. We come to the problem of addiction with differing degrees of vulnerability. Some of us are innately more vulnerable than others. It's also true that our life circumstance contributes to our vulnerability. But I would say that we're all struggling to varying degrees with addiction because we're surrounded 24-7 by highly reinforcing drugs and behaviors. And so it's, yes, very common, I think, to develop even minor addictions or if you're innately more vulnerable which is maybe true in your case, you know, more significant addictions, and it's also very common to switch from one addiction to another. Without trivializing the problem of addiction, what I always like to remember is that the mental networks that are involved in the process of becoming addicted are the exact same ones that have allowed us to survive over millions of years in a world of scarcity and ever-present danger. So I think it's important that we don't malign ourselves or our brains, but we just say, okay, I was evolutionarily wired to approach pleasure and avoid pain. And if that's something that I have an acute sensitivity for, which let's give that another name, that makes me vulnerable to addiction, that means that I probably would have been one of the only survivors a million years ago, right? Nobody else made it, but me, I would have made it, right? (laughs) Because I was willing to work that much harder to go out and find that reward. I like to do a little frame shift around these types of problems because I think it is important to realize that no matter what the mental illness is, it's not just in us or in our brains. It's an interaction between our brains and our environment, and what can be highly adaptive in one environment becomes unadaptive or even an illness in another environment. And I do think we're living in a time and an age when it's very hard to have the wiring that makes you vulnerable to addiction. Because again, we live in a drugified world where we have this 24 seven access to so many reinforcing drugs and behavior. In fact, they chase us down. Even when we try to run away from them, they follow us, right? With the alerts and the messages and the reminders and the constant gatherings, you know, all the drugs everywhere all the time. So I just like to reframe it because I think there's so much shame, especially in addiction. I mean, it's amazing how much shame we all experience when we have desire for something and that desire makes us on some level not entirely in control. I think part of it is that we associate that with being like an infant child. Babies have desires, right? And they cry and cry until they get that desire met. But as adults, we feel like we should be more continent than that, more in control. And so when we're not, it can be very shameful for us. And so I think it's just really good to remember to reframe it. And that these are this wiring, it's not good or bad. It just is what it is. And in some ways, it can be incredibly adaptive and helpful. I bet you're super tenacious. And when you get your teeth into something, you pursue it to the nth degree, which is a really great trait. And not everybody has that. So the fact that it also might make you more vulnerable to getting addicted. Okay, that's there too. But, you know, you kind of take the good and the bad.
0: Thank you for that reframe. Most of this show is about figuring out how to reframe things so that they are manageable in one way or another. And so that's really, really helpful. And I do tend to laugh at the things I go through when I can because it helps me to heal and that's one of my coping skills of managing. But for others, that might not necessarily resonate. They might be dealing with an addiction and I'm sort of laughing over here about mine and, and that doesn't feel good. And so I'm curious though, from a professional point of view, how do you define addiction? Because we do throw that word around sometimes, oh, I'm addicted to this, I'm addicted to that. But I know that there's a lot of very similar processes that are happening in your brain, whether it's something more extreme like drugs or it's a shopping habit. So how do you define it? We're all here just trying to live our best lives, right? He has a PhD in counseling and has been sitting with hurting people for 20 years. He shares practical advice for everything from how to connect with people, how to face depression, overcome anxiety, and learn just what it means to be well. But what's really cool about his show is you can even leave a voicemail or send an email and he'll address your topic or question about mental or emotional health. On the show, so no matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Deloney Show is here for you. Listen to the Dr. John Deloney Show wherever you get your podcasts, or follow the link on the website. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I really need to get something off my chest. Being a mom of a three-year-old boy is really freaking hard, and sometimes it has me questioning my sanity. But then he'll grab my face and call me his sweet little mama. Yes, that's a real thing he says, (laughs) and it will all melt away until I break his banana. I thought I was done with emotionally abusive relationships, but nope. We all carry around stressors, big and small, and when we keep them all bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. For me, just talking things through is hugely helpful, but it's so hard finding friends and family that are unbiased or non-judgmental. And therapy isn't just about dealing with major trauma, you know? How do you define addiction?
1: So addiction is the continued compulsive use of a drug or a behavior despite harm to self and or others. That's really the broadest, simplest definition that I could give you. If we were to break that down a little bit more, addiction is often characterized by the four C's, control, compulsion, cravings, and consequences. And those mean just what they sound like. Control means I plan to use a certain amount of my drug over a certain period of time, and I exceeded that. I wasn't in control. Compulsions means a lot of my mental real estate is occupied with getting the drug, using the drug, hiding the drug. And there's a level of automaticity to it where I'm doing it without even realizing it. Cravings is where I have intrusive thoughts of wanting to use that can even be physiological. Like people with food addiction might see a donut in the break room and actually break out in a cold sweat just by seeing the donut. And then consequences means that because of my drug use, I experience consequences. And those can be in any facet of our lives. They can be in our relationships, our personal health. They can be consequences at work or at school, just mental health consequences, The other thing is that often typically go along with addiction are things we call tolerance, dependence, and withdrawal. So tolerance is needing more of my drug or more potent forms of my drug to get the same effect over time. And in my book, Dopamine Nation, I talk about how my drug of choice turned out to be reading and novels and how I got hooked on romance novels starting out with the Twilight Saga, but eventually progressing to more and more potent graphic books about sex until I was staying up in the morning and reading Shades of Grey. And again, I would say that is an important hallmark. If you find that over time what used to work for you isn't any longer, that's key. The other thing is experiencing withdrawal when you're not using. And the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance or behavior is anxiety, irritability, insomnia, and depression. And the way that I experienced this is that nothing else in my life at the time that I was compulsively reading romance novels, nothing else was interesting. And I thought it was because my life wasn't interesting, but what I discovered after I stopped reading romance novels and experienced the withdrawal and got through the withdrawal, which was hard, was that in fact, I really had a lot in my life I was interested in, but I was so narrowly focused on my drug that I was unable to experience joy in other areas. So that's also something to look for. I also just want to emphasize that addiction is a spectrum disorder mild, moderate, and severe. And we also have risky use, which doesn't quite meet threshold criteria for addiction, but it means we're sort of on the borderline. I would probably put my romance reading addiction, I use the word addiction, but probably it was more like on the borderline between risky use maladaptive use and actually being a use disorder. I'm not sure I ever quite crossed over. But what I'm trying to do in describing that behavior in my own life is just to emphasize that, again, we all can relate on some level to addiction. And I think it's important to do that so that we can understand people who become severely addicted and have empathy for them, because really we're all on the same spectrum,
0: Right, and I had flashbacks of almost every mild to extreme addiction that I've had when you were describing that, and I could think of the moments where I was doing it despite the fact that I could harm myself or I am harming myself, and that is very apparent in something like bulimia, but we can even look at screen time. Like, do you have to check your notifications while you're on the highway? And did you just get an offender bender? And what could that have been? It's easy to turn yeah. our eye when we're not experiencing that thing that that person has to experience. But what's, what's your thing? And when you think about that, and you talked about how we're living in such a difficult time for addiction because, everything's at the press of a button, everything's so bright and shiny, and they have billions of dollars into how to keep us addicted even (laughs) to certain things. But what if all these things weren't available? You talked about the prohibition and the effects on that, and it was pretty fascinating to me. What did you learn from researching prohibition?
1: Well, what I learned was that one of the biggest risk factors for developing addiction is simple access to a drug. When we have more access, we're more likely to try it and we're more likely to get addicted to it. And the converse is also true. So if you look at historical examples like Prohibition, when the production, distribution, sale of alcohol was made illegal in this country between 1920 and 1933, that the rates of alcohol use disorder, public drunkenness, alcoholic liver disease, all decreased by half. Many people don't really know that about prohibition. We hear a lot about the speakeasies and about crime, how crime got worse. And certainly it did generate a black market, but even that black market could never rival the ubiquitous legal access to alcohol that predated and postdated prohibition. And that's simply by decreasing access the harm from alcohol was significantly decreased on a very um, large public health scale. I mean, you're looking at 50%, a decrease in 50% of of common harmful outcomes. That's a huge impact. I, I can't think of any other public policy measure that has had that kind of impact when you think about substance use. And then when alcohol was made legal again in the early 1930s, that decade or more of decreased alcohol access actually continued in terms of keeping the harms of alcohol and the rates of alcohol down for another two decades. It really wasn't until the 80s and 90s That we saw a huge increase again in alcohol consumption, especially among women, um, leading to the kinds of rates of alcohol use disorder, alcohol addiction that we have today, which are sadly on the rise. So global deaths from addiction are going up in every age category, and 50% of those deaths are in people under the age of 50 alcohol use disorder, alcohol addiction in women has increased 85% in the last two decades and gone up 55% in older people. And these are cohorts that we thought were previously immune to developing an alcohol addiction who are now commonly developing alcohol addiction. It used to be that men developed alcohol use disorder at a ratio of five to one compared to women. And now it's one to one women are as likely as men to develop an alcohol use disorder in our modern age. So the point really is that access really does matter. And today we're living in a time of unprecedented access to highly reinforcing drugs and behaviors, which has made us all vulnerable to the problem of addiction.
0: Well, one of the things that you talk about is that you're worried that we sort of over sanitized and over protected our children so that there's no way to injure themselves, but there's also no way to prepare themselves for the world. And one of the things I can't help but wonder, well, the data with that just is hard to argue, but there's also the side of me that's like, freedom, should government be prohibiting us from one more thing? Should this be our decision? Maybe it'll balance out to where we understand how to deal with adversity, maybe the planet rots. I'm not sure. (laughs) So what are your thoughts on that? Whereas are we just not teaching people the tools to cope with anything? And so they reach for the first thing that helps to numb that? Or is it just the access or a combination of the two? What would your solution for that be?
1: I look at the growing problem of addiction in the modern age as similar to climate change. In order to really target climate change and protect our planet, whether or not you believe in climate change, let's just say protect the environment, it's going to take both bottom-up and top-down processes. So that means we as individuals have to try to not drive our car as much, not use as many plastic bags, limit our water use, all the things that we can do as individuals. At the same time, that alone is not going to solve the problem. We also need top-down policies from the government, from corporations, you name it. There are people who make the rules. They need to keep that in mind as we're thinking collectively about how to save the environment. I think the same thing is true with addiction. My book, Dopamine Nation, is really all about the things we as individuals can do in our own lives to try to curb our compulsive overconsumption of pretty much everything. But it doesn't mean that the corporations that make these products get off the hook. It doesn't mean that schools are off the hook. It doesn't mean that the federal government is off the hook. Those entities too, from a top-down perspective, need to create policies and limitations, incentives and disincentives, so that we're all collectively helping each other uh, manage this problem. As far as raising kids today in this environment, I mean, I do think it's an incredibly challenging time to raise kids, but not for any obvious reasons. I mean, kids have more today and more access to every kind of good thing we could ever want for them. But what we have to recognize, it's in fact that easy access, which is in many ways their burden or their cross to bear. And so helping them figure out how to live in a world of overwhelming abundance and how to moderate consumption and restrain their use. And just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something. These are the types of things that we have to be thinking about.
0: That is a really good point, because if we were living in a world with overwhelming scarcity, we would have to teach our children how to survive in that world. We'd learn to forage and we'd learn to grow our food and all the things that you would do in that environment. But we don't often think that similar things need to be thought of when we're living in a world of such abundance. And one of the things that you talk about, one of the, my biggest takeaway from your book, I had so many of them, but it had a new spin on what I've understood previously about dopamine. So I do know that when I'm engaging in activities that activate my reward center, it's, it's, spewing out dopamine in my brain. I can develop addictions to things that don't obviously contain dopamine. It's triggered in my brain by seeing this digital game or by the food that I'm eating or whatever it is. But what really struck me is that the more that we engage in that, the less ability we even have to feel pleasure and the less... Ability we have to, or tolerance we have, I should say, towards pain. So talk about that. Why are we losing the ability to even minor forms of discomfort? What's happening there?
1: You know, one of the most fascinating findings in neuroscience in the last half century or so is that the same parts of the brain that process pleasure also process pain and they work like opposite sides of a balance. So if you imagine that in your brain there's a balance like a teeter-totter in a kid's playground and that balance sits in a part of your brain called the reward pathway. So when we do something pleasurable like eat a piece of chocolate in my case, or read a romance novel, I get a little release of dopamine in my brain's reward pathway and that balance tips slightly to the side of pleasure. But one of the overarching rules governing that balance is that it wants to remain level. It doesn't want to be tipped for very long to the side of pleasure or the side of pain. And our brains will work very hard to restore a level balance or what scientists call homeostasis. And the way our brains do that is as soon as we do something pleasurable and we get that release of dopamine, our brain starts to downregulate our own dopamine production and our own dopamine transmission in order to bring it back to baseline. And I kind of imagine this as these little gremlins hopping on the pain side of the balance to bring it level again. But the thing is, the gremlins really like it on the balance, so they stay on until it's tipped an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. That means that our dopamine levels aren't just brought back to tonic baseline. They actually go below baseline. We go into a dopamine deficit state. For every pleasure, there is a cost, and that cost is pain. For every release of dopamine, there is a cost. And that cost is a little dopamine deficit state. And when we're in that dopamine deficit state, it's essentially akin to depression or anxiety or insomnia or craving. We're restless, we're uncomfortable. We keep reaching for another piece of chocolate or another YouTube video or another drink, not to feel good, but just to get out of that dopamine deficit state. Now, if we wait long enough, that feeling can pass. And our own bodies will ultimately restore dopamine. Those gremlins will hop off the balance and our teeter-totter will be level again. But here's the thing. If we continue to ingest these highly rewarding substances and behavior and continue to bombard our reward pathway with huge surges in dopamine, we eventually adapt to that by getting so many gremlins on the pain side of the balance that they fill this whole room and now they're camping out there. Now our brain has downregulated our production of dopamine to really, really low levels in order to compensate for all of that dopamine high that we were getting from these highly rewarding substances. And those gremlins will stay on the pain side of the balance, not just for hours to days, but potentially for days to weeks, to months. And that's why people with addiction will relapse even months after they've stopped using, even after their life has gotten so much better. It's because they're walking around with a balance tilted to the side of pain. They're experiencing insomnia, anxiety, dysphoria, craving. It's all they can do to just get through the day without scratching that itch. And so they will sometimes relapse even unconsciously. And I think that's really the essence there, that addiction from a biochemical perspective is when we start to tilt our pleasure-pain balance chronically to the side of pain, when we change our hedonic or joy set point such that the only thing that gives us joy is these highly rewarding drugs and behaviors, and when we're not using, we're in a dopamine deficit state experiencing the universal symptoms of withdrawal.
0: it just makes the consequences so much more than what we think in the moment. So often it's just like, well, it's just this one more piece of chocolate or it's just a few more minutes of screen time or I'm going to ignore this app limit alert or whatever. And we think it's just for that moment. But knowing that it's not just that moment, this is going to be, that's actually one of the things that my husband and I have talked about when we were, decreasing our drinking years ago, which did work. But like I said, I just always had it on my mind. I'm like, do I need a glass of wine right now? So I'm not drinking at all. But anyways, yeah, we would say like, okay, well, if we have a glass of wine tonight, we're borrowing tomorrow's energy. And the idea of borrowing tomorrow's energy when we're like, What's happening tomorrow? We know what's happening tonight. We're watching The Bachelorette. (laughs) That's all that's happening. Is today's energy or is this more important than the endless opportunities that tomorrow
1: holds? If that makes sense. Yeah, no, it, it does. I mean, I think that ability to project ourselves in the future, even if it's just to tomorrow and anticipate the consequences, sometimes what's called thinking through the drink is really, really important for helping us inform whether or not we want to have that drink in the moment. And what allows us to do that is actually a part of our brain called the prefrontal cortex. And that's the big gray matter right behind our foreheads. That's the part that allows us to anticipate consequences, to narrate our own stories, to have a kind of a moral sense of things. And when things are working well, then in our brains, our prefrontal cortex is active and is communicating with our reward pathway, which is where that teeter-totter is sitting. And allowing those two parts of the brain to communicate is really, really important to making good and informed choices. And what happens in addiction is essentially we kind of shut off the prefrontal cortex. It no longer is communicating with the pleasure-pain balance. And our pleasure-pain balance is just doing its own thing reflexively. And we're not even driving the bus anymore, right? We're just sort of a slave to that. So I think again that's what, one of the reasons why I really do recommend this one month period of abstinence even if you don't you're not sure you're addicted in fact especially if you're not sure you're addicted to whatever your drug is I recommend stopping it for a month just to be able to see what happens in your brain because most people will go through a period of withdrawal in the first two weeks and then if they can make it to four weeks they'll kind of get out of that space homeostasis will be reset they'll be able to look back at their use and really see true consequences and also they'll feel just better less anxious less depressed less craving, less preoccupied, like the way you were preoccupied with always having a drink and ultimately decided, you know, it's not even worth it to me to try to moderate it. It's better to just abstain long-term because I always get into the pattern of being preoccupied about it. So those are things you can discover about yourself.
0: It's funny how one tends to lead to the other because like I said, I was just like, you know, I'm a mom now. I just don't want him seeing me with a glass of wine. So it's like these other little motivations come up. And then the moment that I let that go, all of a sudden I'm like, God, my screen time is off. (laughs) It's just way too high. What is happening here? And it's funny because I've gone through different phases of decreasing screen time. I did so about a year ago where I was only on my phone for less than 30 minutes a day. And I felt so much clarity. But then it yeah. does sort of seep in, you make the excuses. I've got to like remind myself why this can only lead to death. I've got to be really yeah. dramatic with yeah. myself. Yeah, but one of the things that really hit me in reading your book, you use this example of somebody with a shopping addiction. And this is what I was experiencing at the moment with my screen time because I have a new baby. So I have every single excuse to purchase new things. And yeah. so I was getting just little things almost every day. And I have to go to the post office because I live in a little mountain town to receive my Packages, so every day it was like going to the PO. <laughs> it was like a whole thing, and I'd be waiting in line, and I'd be all excited. I'd get in the car, the opening it up, the stopping at the recycling center to recite—like all of it was a part of the ritual. So tell me about what happens to our dopamine levels just during that effect of anticipation and craving.
1: Right. So that's really fascinating. And there are some amazing animal studies that have looked at this. So what we know from Pavlov's dogs is that those dogs will salivate when you give them a slab of meat, which is an indication of them anticipating a reward. But it turns out that Pavlov trained his dogs to know that if a bell went off or a light flashed, and then they associated that bell or that light with a slab of meat coming a few minutes later, they would start to salivate just at the sound of the bell or just at the flash of the light. So that was interesting because what it showed was that there was something happening physiologically just anticipating a reward, not to mention when the actual reward came. Later, there were very interesting rat experiments where the scientists put a probe inside a rat's brain to measure actual dopamine levels. And what they found was that when the rat pressed a lever and got an injection of cocaine from pressing that lever, there was a huge surge in dopamine in the brain's reward pathway. Then they trained the rats to know that when they saw a flashing light or heard a bell, which would be an indication that if they pressed the lever after that, they would get cocaine, they measured dopamine levels and they found that at the flash of the light or the sound of the bell, that alone released a little bit of dopamine in the brain's reward pathway. Not as much as actually ingesting the drug, but certainly a clearly observable increase in dopamine in the reward pathway. In other words, the reminder or the indication or the alert that a reward is coming is itself a reward. That alone releases dopamine in the brain's reward pathway. But here's the real key. What they discovered was that right after that little mini release of dopamine with the flashing light or the sound of the bell, dopamine levels go back down quickly, not just to baseline, but again below baseline into this mini deficit state. And that is craving, right? That's the pleasure-pain balance tipped to the side of pain. And that craving is what then drives the motivation to go and press the lever, which is work, to get the cocaine. And the same thing happens to us all the time, right? We get an alert that someone texted us. We told ourselves, you know what? I'm going to focus on something else. I'm not going to be on my phone right now. But as soon as we see that alert that we got a text, we get a little surge of dopamine followed by a dopamine deficit state. And then we're really at the mercy of that dopamine deficit state. The physiologic drive to check our phone then and see what the text said is really overwhelming, which is why turning off alerts is a really powerful way to help us control our consumption because It means that we're not subjecting our brains to all these little mini dopamine surges and mini dopamine deficit states, which create the craving that drive the checking. That reminds me of, you know, when you're on a long
0: road trip and then you really have to pee and you're fine, you can hold it and then you hit the driveway and it's like, all of a sudden you're like, I can't hold this at all. Then my panties are wet for all the wrong reasons. (laughs) So what do we do? You said, you mentioned decreasing our use or or total abstinence for 30 days. But you also talked about how because of this, the deficit on one side that often people will even relapse months later. So what is your normal protocol to really help people
1: find change that lasts? Remember the pleasure pain balance, when it gets tipped to the side of pain, eventually those neuroadaptation gremlins will hop off. If we have enough brain plasticity, our brains will, with enough abstinence from that drug, start to heal themselves, we will start to regenerate our own dopamine. Our dopamine transmission levels will go back to tonic baseline. Typically, that takes a minimum of four weeks in my experience. And in some cases, it takes much, much longer than that. But in most situations, even people with severe addiction, they start to feel... Substantially better after four weeks of abstinence, and they are essentially out of the acute withdrawal phase. That is huge. I mean, if you can make it the four weeks, what that means is again, your homeostasis is restored, you can take joy in other things, you can look back and see true cause and effect. And then it really becomes a matter of setting goals for the future. Do you want to continue to abstain, or do you want to go back to using your drug in moderation? And if it's the latter, really. What I recommend is self finding strategies. And these are ways to change our environment so that we're not relying on our willpower. Willpower is an exhaustible resource. We wake up with more than we have at night, right? We can make it through a day. It recharges itself, usually over 24 hours. But the bottom line is if we're constantly getting alerts all day long and subjecting ourselves to reminders of use, we're eventually going to relapse. What we need to do is put barriers between ourselves and our drug of choice so that we're not constantly having to battle the urges to use and we're not constantly having to rely on willpower. So this is things like physical barriers, not having the drug in the house, chronological barriers. And this is especially for moderation, but saying I'm only going to use on these days or only going to use for this amount of time. Or we can have categorical barriers where, for example, we say, I'm never going to use that app, but this kind of app is okay. Or sometimes people categorically turn their drug of choice into something that's sacred and holy and very special and only for special occasions and only surrounded by certain special rituals. And then they can really look forward to it, but they really reserve it for special anointed times. So those are kinds of the ways that I think we can think about trying to insulate ourselves, especially in a world that's constantly inviting us to overconsume.
0: I mentioned in the beginning of this episode that I found often when I'm really trying to manage one thing, it's very easy to overconsume another thing. And so the when I was first not drinking alcohol, all of a sudden my chocolate consumption was like way up there. Is that a healthy way to move from something more harmful to something less harmful? Are we just reinforcing those same types of dopamine habits? What's the protocol there?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's natural when we give up our drug of choice that we feel we want to be kind to ourselves, but switching to some other reinforcing drug or behavior is not in fact, always a kindness because there's something called cross addiction where all reinforcing drugs and behavior ultimately work on the same common reward pathway and ultimately release dopamine. So no matter what it is, if it's releasing a lot of dopamine in our reward pathway, then we're not really allowing our brains to restore homeostasis and to upregulate our own dopamine production, which is why contrary to some common wisdom that you should replace one reward with another if you're trying to quit it, I actually don't recommend that. Instead, I recommend that simultaneously you try to stop all highly rewarding substances and behaviors, especially things that are triggers. So for example, some people will say, well, I only crave a cigarette when I drink alcohol or every time I listen to certain types of music, I want to drink. So I say to them, well, during the abstinence trial, I would eliminate all of that. It's going to feel kind of like punitive in a way, but the idea is that you're really trying to not bombard your reward pathway so that your brain can heal and you can start generating your own dopamine and upregulating your own dopamine so that you're not in this chronic dopamine deficit state. The other thing that's super counterintuitive, which I recommend is to actually do things that are hard. And why would we want to do that? Well, it turns out that when we press on the pain side of the balance as the initial stimulus, that triggers our own body and brain's re-regulating healing mechanisms to start generating more dopamine, more norepinephrine, more serotonin, and those other feel good chemicals as a way to counteract the initial painful stimulus. And I'm using the term pain very broadly here. It could be physical pain in the form of exercise or ice cold water bath, but it could just be challenging yourself to hard things, new creative endeavors that require a certain amount of frustration tolerance or reading a difficult book or doing something that makes you anxious or that is effortful. It could be just making your life a little less convenient, walking instead of driving, to pick something up at the store. These are the ways that I think by slightly pressing on the pain side of the balance, we can actually generate dopamine in a way that's adaptive and healthier and more enduring in the long run.
0: So I'm reflecting on my last few months where I've made a ton of changes in light of all the changes I've made in my past already. And it's funny because the first one was, I'm like, okay, no alcohol. And then within like two days, I'm like, oh, my screen time. And then I'm like, all screen time. So I have like Hi. watched maybe like one show, but I will say, like you said, the triggers man, how many TV shows have them come home and they pour a nice glass of wine in one of those fancy stem glasses and it looks like a really nice bottle. And all of a sudden I'm watching a a show at 4.30 and I'm like, I want a glass of wine. So that had to be out. But then I started taking long walks and I'm carrying my baby. And so I did have a thought though, where I'm like, (laughs) my husband made a comment about, how I just go so extreme with things. And I was all of a sudden walking like 25,000 steps a day. And he's like, are you just passing on to another addiction? And I'm like, no, I think this is one of those hard things that you might be talking about. So it does seem like a healthy way to funnel my
1: my frustration yes. or my craving, Correct. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, it is possible to get addicted to exercise, but it's really hard to do. It's really hard because there's so much activation energy required to do hard things like get ourselves outside and walking and exercising that usually we're not able to take it to the extreme that some people do so that it becomes a real addiction. I mean, it's something to watch for, but in general, differing levels of exercise, depending upon your baseline fitness level and what your body can tolerate is a really great way to get dopamine that doesn't lead to tolerance. It can definitely lead to dependence and withdrawal. You can get to a point where if you stop, you'll go into withdrawal from exercise, but it typically doesn't lead to tolerance. Typically, it continues to work for us over many years. And why is that? Because we're not directly releasing dopamine with exercise. What we're doing is we're doing something that's actually not noxious or toxic for cells. And then that is triggering our body's own re-regulating mechanisms to to, to release dopamine in order to restore balance. And that's a really good source of enduring dopamine.
0: And that's a good point. I do have to say the moment you started speaking, I was recalling a mindset too. And my mindset with this was so much more about what can I do to distract myself in a healthy way, bond with my baby. I was trying to pick the healthiest thing versus I have, I do believe there were times where I had an unhealthy relationship with, exercise. And that was back in the heights of my bulimia. But the exercise was to sort of force my body into submission. It's coming from a whole different place. Like I need to do this to be worthy versus how can I fill my time in a way that feels really good. And so that's something to consider when we are choosing our activities. But we've covered so much. And I will tell you that your book was so, so helpful for me at a time where, I was making a lot of changes all at once. And so far, they're all working really well. And so, and part of that was really educating myself in a way that makes it easy to understand not only the benefits, but also the consequences of the behavior I was engaging in. So is there anything that we haven't covered that you just feel is really important for listeners to
1: understand? I mean, you've asked a lot of great questions. I think, you know, we've hit a lot of the high points. I do talk in the latter part of my book about the importance of truth-telling and neuroscientifically why that's important as well as the importance of connections and finding a tribe. But I think you really hit on it well with it's not just the behavior. It's also a sort of meta purpose behind why we're doing it. And we can have healthy reasons and we can have unhealthy reasons and those, those things matter. I
0: remember you did talk a lot about the importance of truth telling. And I do wanna touch on that because as somebody who's gone in and out of a lot of different types of addictions, I know that that's part of the reason that I'm just so sort of shamelessly honest on my podcast is because it's how I released the shame that I was holding for so long. So what is it about the truth telling or how does not telling the truth end up contributing to our addictions?
1: One of the things I've learned from my patients over the years is that the ones who get into really good recovery almost all say that they can't lie about anything. And it's not just a matter of not lying about their drug use, they can't lie about anything. If they even lie about why they're five minutes late to a meeting, that is something that could send them down the spiral of addiction. And I became really fascinated by that and and started to try to tease apart what is it about truth telling that allows people to be in healthy recovery for so long. And I came up with a, a couple of different reasons, four or five, but I'll just touch on a few. One is that Connecting, making deep human intimate connections with other people is a really healthy and adaptive source of dopamine. And one of the ways to do that is to be brutally honest with other people. We think that by telling people all of our sort of you know, secrets and, and shameful behaviors, we think it'll send them running. But in fact, it has the opposite effect and it brings people closer because they realize that they're not the only ones, right? They're, they can kind of share in our collective brokenness. So, so that's one thing. The other thing that I hypothesize based on the neuroscience is that telling the truth is actually effortful for all of us. We're all natural liars. And so if we commit to telling not a single lie, not a single one in any given day, most of us will not make it through the day. Just simply trying to tell the truth, I think, strongly activates the prefrontal cortex which remember the prefrontal cortex communicating with our dopamine reward pathway is fundamental to our ability to make good choices, delay gratification. And so I think literally the exercise of trying to tell the truth about every little thing in our day upregulates and activates our prefrontal cortex, which in turn allows us to moderate and regulate our dopamine reward pathway, and the pleasure-pain balance. So those are just two examples of why truth-telling, I think, can really help with the problem of compulsive overconsumption and also just make our lives better. I I talk about the marshmallow experiment and variations on that with truth-telling and, and how truth-telling also is contagious. So when we tell the truth, then people around us are also more likely to tell the truth. Conversely, if we lie, People around us are more likely to lie, including our kids. And I give some specific examples of when I stole my kids' Easter bunny chocolate and then lied about it for a good week. And then they started accusing each other. And then I realized I had to fess up. But the point is we really can affect our networks, our social networks and how people treat each other when we tell the truth and when we lie. And I think telling the truth is is the positive way to go.
0: Well, thank you so much for your research around this. Like I said, it was so helpful for me and I know it's going to be helpful to so many listeners. So for listeners that are interested in reading more about your book and learning about you, connecting with you, where's the best place for them to connect with you online?
1: Well, I'm not on social media because I'm too compulsive to be able to handle it. But my book, Dopamine Nation, is available wherever books are sold, including Amazon. It's also available on Audible for your listeners who prefer to listen to books rather than read them. And you can find out more about me at com. That's a website that has information about the book and also other information.
0: All the links for this episode will be at mindlove.com slash 211. Your challenge for this week is to try a little truth-telling experiment. Regardless of what your addiction is, you know, I know you know, we all know, the little thing that gets us, (laughs) I know I do, or the multiple things. So try the truth-telling experiment. Try to go a whole day, every day, (laughs) if you can, just telling the truth as often as possible. For me, knowing that this very simple act can help me to manage my tendency to overconsume is motivation enough. Not only that, but it helps us connect deeper with the people around us. It encourages the people around us to be honest, open, and transparent with us as individuals. There's so many benefits to just truth telling. I bet you didn't think that an episode around overconsumption and addiction was gonna come back to just telling the truth. But that's all the challenges. So let me know how it goes. Reach out to me on Instagram at mindlovemelissa. If you loved this episode, please share it. Just take a screenshot and tag mindlovemelissa and mindlove podcast or share it directly with somebody who could benefit from it. Other ways to support the show are by supporting one of my amazing sponsors. You can also find out who these sponsors are at mindlove.com/sponsors. If you need a refresher, and the best way to support the show is by joining Mind Love Premium. It's the little community of mind love lovers, mind lovers, whatever we call ourselves. You can join at mindlove.com slash premium or right there in the podcast app. And that's all for today. So thanks for giving your mind a little love today and I'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning into Your Higher Frequency with Mind Love. Head to mindlove.com for a free gift
1: to keep your vibes up until next week.